0: Weapons got you killed, often because you were holding one. But things were going too far. He had heard Andy's bones creak, and Nut had brought the man to his knees without sweating. And there were two reasons for taking precautions right there. One was that if you put Andy down, you'd better put him out, right out, because he would come back, blood around the corner of his mouth. And two, the worst, was that right now Nut was more worrying than Andy. At least he knew what Andy was. Carrying a ball each, they hurried back to the university, with Trev keeping a watchful eye on high buildings. "'It's amazing what's turning up in this city,' he said. "'There were a couple of vampire types back there. Did you know?' "'Oh, those! They work for ladyship. They are there for protection.' "'Whose?' said Trev. "'Do not worry about them.' "'Ha! And do you know something even stranger has happened this evening?' said Trev, as the university hove into sight. "'You offered that dwarf fifteen dollars, and he didn't even haggle.' "'Like, that's unheard of.' "'Must be the power of glowing.' "'Yes, but I actually gave him twenty dollars,' said Nut. "'Why? He didn't ask for anything more?' "'No, but he did work very hard, "'and the extra five dollars will more than repay him "'for the dagger you stole while our backs were turned.' "'I never did,' said Trev hotly. "'Your automatic, unthinking, and spring-loaded reply "'is noted, Mr. Trev, "'as was the sight of the dagger on the bench, "'shortly followed by the sight of the empty space "'where the dagger had been.' I'm not angry, because I saw you most sensibly toss Mr. Shanks's wretched cutlass over a wall, and I understand your nervousness, but nevertheless I must point out that this is stealing, and so I ask you, as my friend, to take the dagger back in the morning.' "'But that will leave him up by five dollars and his dagger back,' Trev sighed. "'But at least we've got a few dollars each,' he said, as they entered the back door of the university. "'Yes, and then again no, Mr. Trev—' "'You will take the remaining five dollars "'and this rather grubby although genuine receipt for twenty dollars "'to Mr. Stibbons, who thinks you are no good, "'thus making him doubt his original assumption "'that you are a thief and a scallywag, "'and assisting your progress in this university.' "'I'm not a—' Trev began and stopped, "'honest enough to acknowledge the knife in his coat. "'Honestly, Nut, you're one of a kind, you are.' "'Yes,' said Nut. "'I'm coming to that conclusion.' Watcher. The word in huge type shouted out from the front page of the Times, next to a big picture of Juliet glittering in Micromail and smiling right at the reader. Glenda, frozen for the last fifteen seconds in the act of raising a piece of toast to her mouth, finally bit. Now she blinked and dropped the toast to read, Mystery Model Jules was the toast of an astounding fashion show at Shatter yesterday, when she was the very incarnation of Micromail the remarkable metal cloth about which there has been so much speculation in recent months, and which, she confirms, does not chafe. She chatted happily, and with fetching straightforward earthiness, to dignitaries to whom, this writer is certain, no one has ever said watcher before. They appeared to find the experience refreshing, and entirely without chafe. Glenda stopped reading at this point, because the question, how much trouble are we going to get into about this, was attempting to fill her whole head and there was no trouble, was there? And there would not be. There couldn't be. First, who would think that the beauty in the silver beard, like some goddess of the forge, was a cook's assistant? And second, there was no trouble to be had, unless someone tried to make it, in which case they would have to go through Glenda, and Glenda would go through them in very short order. Because Jules was wonderful, she had to admit it. The girl brought radiant sunshine to the page, and suddenly it was plain, it would be a crime to hide all that grace and beauty in a cellar. So what if she had a vocabulary of fewer than seven hundred words? There were more than enough people who were stuffed tight as an egg with words, and who would want to see any of them on the front page? Anyway, she thought, as she pulled her coat on, it would be a nine-minute wonder in any case, and besides, she added to herself, it wasn't as if anyone would spot it was Juliet. After all, she was wearing a beard, and that was amazing, because there was no way that a woman in a beard should look attractive. But it worked. "'Imagine that catching on. "'You'd have to spend twice as long at the hairdressers. "'Someone's going to think about that,' she thought. "'There was no sound from the Stollops' house. "'She wasn't surprised. "'Juliette did not have much grasp of the idea of punctuality. Glenda popped next door to see how the widow Crowdy was, "'and then headed, in the drizzling rain, "'back to her safe haven of the night kitchen. "'Halfway there, an all-but-forgotten pressure in her bodice "'reminded her of her duty, "'and she dared to go into the Royal Bank of Ankh-Morpork.' "'Trembling with fear and defiance, she walked up to a clerk at his desk, "'slapped fifty warm dollars in front of him, and said, "'I want to start a bank account, all right?' "'She left five minutes later with a shiny account-book, "'and the delightful recollection that a posh-looking man "'at a posh-looking desk in a posh-looking building "'had called her Madam, and enjoyed the sensation "'until it ran into the reality that Madam had better roll up her sleeves and get to work. "'There was a lot to do.' She made pies at least a day ahead, so that they could mature. And Mr. Nutt's appetite last night had put quite a large dent in her pantry. But at least there wouldn't be much demand for pies tomorrow night. Even the wizards didn't call for a pie after a banquet. Ah, yes, the banquet, she thought, as the rain started to soak into her coat. The banquet. She would have to see about the banquet. Sometimes, if you wanted to go to the ball, you had to be your own fairy godmother. There were several obstacles requiring the touch of a magic wand— Mrs. Whitlow did indeed operate a certain kind of apartheid between the night and day kitchens, as if one flight of stairs actually changed who you were. The next difficulty was that Glenda did not have, according to the traditions of the university, the right kind of figure to serve at table, at least when there were visitors. And, lastly, Glenda did not have the temperament for serving at table. It wasn't that she didn't know how to smile. She was quite capable of smiling, if you gave her enough warning— but she positively hated having to smile at people who actually merited, instead, a flick around the earhole with a napkin. She hated taking away plates of unfinished food. She always had to suppress a tendency to say things like, why did you put it on your plate if you didn't intend to finish it? And, look, you've left more than half of it, and it cost a dollar a pound. And, of course, it's cold, but that's because you've been playing footsie with the young lady opposite and haven't been concentrating on your dinner. And, when all else failed, there's little children in clutch, you know. It was a phrase of her mother's, but she'd obviously missed some significant part of it. She hated waste, she thought to herself, as she walked along the stone corridor towards the night kitchen. There never needed to be any if you knew your way around a kitchen, and if your diners had the decency to take your food seriously. She was rambling to herself, she knew that. Occasionally she would pull the front page of the Times out of her bag and take a look at it again. It had all really happened, and there was the proof. But it was a funny thing— "'Every day something happened that was important enough "'to be on the front page of the newspaper. "'She'd never bought it and seen a little sign that said, "'Not much happened yesterday, sorry about that. "'And t- tomorrow, wonderful though that picture was, "'it would be wrapping up fish and chips, "'and everyone would have forgotten about it. "'That would be a load off her mind.' "'There was a polite cough. "'She recognised it as belonging to Nutt, "'who had the politest cough there could possibly be. "'Yes, Mr. Nutt, "'Mr. Trevor sent me with his letter for Miss Juliet, Miss Glenda,' said Nut.' who had apparently been waiting by the steps. He held it out as if it were some double-edged sword. "'She's not come in yet, I'm afraid,' said Glenda, as Nut followed her up the steps. "'But I'll put it on the shelf over here where she'll be bound to see it.' She looked at Nut and saw his eyes firmly fixed on the pie racks. "'Oh, and I do seem to have made one apple pie more than called for. "'I wonder if you would assist me by removing it from the premises.' He gave her a grateful smile, took the pie, and hurried away. Alone again— Glenda looked at the envelope. It was the cheapest sort, the kind that looked as if it had been made from recycled lavatory paper, and somehow it seemed to have got a bit bigger. Inexplicably, she found herself recalling that the gum on those envelopes was so bad when it came to sealing them it was probably better just to have a very bad cold. Anyone could simply open it up, see what it said, dig out a bit of earwax, and no one would be any the wiser. But that would have been a very bad thing to do. Glenda thought that same thought fifteen times before Juliet walked into the night-kitchen, hung up her coat on the hook, and put on her apron. "'There was a man on the bus reading the paper, and it had a picture of me on the front,' she said excitedly. Glenda nodded and handed over her own paper. "'Well, I suppose it's me,' said Juliet, with her head on one side. "'What shall we do now?' "'Open the damn letter!' shouted Glenda. "'What?' said Juliet. "'Er, oh, Trev sent you a letter,' said Glenda. She snatched it from the shelf and held it out. "'Why don't you read it right now?' "'He's probably just mucking about.' "'No, why don't you just read it right now?' "'I haven't tried to open it.' Juliet took the envelope. It opened more or less to a touch. Glenda's evil side thought hardly any gum at all. I could have just flicked it open. "'I can't read with you standing so close,' said Juliet. After some time moving her lips, she went on, "'I don't get it. It's all kind of long words. Lovely curly writing, though.' There's a bit here saying that I look like a summer's day. What's that all about, then? She pressed it into Glenda's hand. Can you read it for me, Glendy? You know I'm not good at complicated words. Well, I'm a bit busy, said Glenda, but since you ask. First time I've ever had a letter that's not all in capitals, said Juliet. Glenda sat down and started to read. A lifetime of what even she would call bad romantic novels suddenly bore fruit. It read as though someone had turned on the poetry tap and then mindedly gone on holiday. But they were wonderful words. Nevertheless, there was the word "swain," for example, which was a definite marker, and quite a lot about flowers and quite a lot of what looked like pleading wrapped up in fancy letters. And after a while, she took out her handkerchief and fanned the air around her face. So, what's he all about? said Juliet. Glenda sighed. How to begin? How did you talk to Juliet about similes and metaphors and poetic license, all wrapped up in wonderful curly writing? She did her best. "'Well, basically he's saying that he really fancies you, thinks you're really fit, "'how about a date no-anky-panky promises, and there's three little X's underneath?' Juliet started to cry. "'That's lovely. Fancy him sitting down and writing all those words, just for me. "'Real poetry, just for me. I'm going to sleep with it under my pillow.' "'Yes, I suspect that he had something like that in mind,' said Glenda, "'and thought, Trev likely a poet, not likely at all.' There was a dreadful load on Pepe's bladder, and he was stuck between a rock and a hard place, if that wasn't too offensive a description of lying between Madame and a wall. She was still asleep. She snored magnificently, using the traditional multi-part snore, known to those who are fortunate enough to have to listen to it every night as the (laughs) symphony. And she was lying on his leg, and the room was pitch dark. He managed to retrieve his leg, half of which had gone to sleep, and set out on the well-known search for porcelain, which began by him putting his foot down on an empty champagne bottle, which skittered away and left him flat on his back. In the gloom he groped for it, found it, tested it for true emptiness because you never knew your luck, and, as it were, filled it again, putting it down on what was probably a table, but in his mind and the darkness could just as well have been an armadillo. There was another sound syncopating with Madame's virtuoso performance. It must have been that which woke him. By groping, he located his shorts, and after only three tries, managed to get them the right way up and the right way round. They were a little chilly. That was the problem with micro-mail. It was, after all, metal. On the other hand, it did not chafe, and you never had to wash it. Five minutes on the fire, and it was as hygienic as anything. Besides, Pepe's version of the shorts held a surprise all of their own. Thus feeling that he could face the world, or at least the part of it that would need to see only the top of him, he shuffled and stubbed his way to the shop's door, checking every bottle along the way for evidence of liquid content. Remarkably, a bottle of port had survived with 50% remaining capacity—any port in a storm, he thought—and drank his breakfast. The shop's door was rattling. It had a small sliding aperture by which the staff could determine whether they wanted to let a prospective customer in, because when you are a posh shop like Chatter, You don't sell things to just anyone. Pairs of eyeballs zigzagged back and forth across his vision as people clustered on the other side of the door and fought for attention. Somebody said, We're to see Jules. She's resting, said Pepe. That was always a good line and could mean anything. Have you seen the picture in the Times, said a voice. Then look, as a vision of Juliet was held up in front of the door. Blimey, he said to himself. She had a very tiring day, he said. The public wants to know all about her, said a sterner voice, and a rather less aggressive female voice said, She seems to be rather amazing. She is, she is, said Pepe, inventing desperately, but a very private person and a bit artistic too, if you know what I mean. Well, I've got a big order to place, said yet another voice, as the owner managed to shuffle for slot space. Oh, well, we don't have to wake her up for that. Just give me a moment and I'll be right with you. He took another swig of the port. When he turned around, Madame, in a nightshirt that could have accommodated a platoon, at least if they were very friendly, was bearing down on him with a glass in one hand and the champagne bottle in the other. "'This stuff's gone horribly flat,' she said. "'I'll go and find some fresh,' he replied, snatching it from her quickly. "'We've got newspaper people and customers out there, and they all want jewels. Can you remember where she lives?' "'I'm sure she told me,' said Madame. "'But it all seems a long time ago.' "'That other one, Glenda, I think, works at some big place in the city as a cook. "'Anyway, why do they want to see her?' "'There's a wonderful picture in the Times,' said Pepe. "'You know when you said you thought we'd get rich? "'Well, it looks like you weren't thinking big enough.' "'What do you suggest, dear?' "'Me?' said Pepe. "'Take the order, because that's good business, "'and tell the others that Jules will see them later.' "'Do you think they'll go for that?' "'They'll have to, because we don't know where the hell she is.' There's a million dollars walking around this city on legs. Reese, low king of the dwarfs, paid particular attention to the picture of the wonderful girl. The definition wasn't too bad at all. The technique of translating the clack's semaphore signal into a black-and-white picture was quite well advanced these days. Even so, his people in Ankh-Morpork must have thought this particularly interesting to merit the expense of the bandwidth required. Certainly, it was exercising a lot of other dwarfs, but in the low king's experience it was possible to find someone, somewhere, who objected to anything. He looked at the grags in front of him. So simple for people like veterinari. he thought. He just has religions to deal with. We don't have religions. Being a dwarf is a religion in itself, and no two priests ever agree, and sometimes it seems that every other dwarf is a priest. I see nothing here to disturb me, he said. "'We believe the beard to be a false one,' said one of the grags. "'That is perfectly acceptable,' said the king. "'There is absolutely nothing in any precedent that bans false beards. "'They are a great salvation to those who find beards hard to grow. "'But she looks, well, alluring,' said one of the other grags. "'They were indistinguishable under their tall, pointed leather cowls. "'Attractive, certainly,' said the king. "'Gentlemen, is this going to take long?' "'It must be stopped. It's not dwarfish.' "'Oh, but it manifestly is, is it not?' said the King. "'Micromale is one hundred per cent male, and you don't get any more dwarfish than that. She is smiling, and while I would agree that dwarfs do not appear to smile very much, certainly not when they come to see me, I think we could profit from her example. "'It's positively an offence against morality.' "'How? Where? Only in your heads, I feel.' "'The tallest,' Grag said.' "'So you intend to do nothing?' "'The King paused for a moment, staring at the ceiling. "'No, I intend to do something,' he said. First of all, I shall see to it that my staff find out "'just how many orders there have been for micromail "'originating from here in bionk today. "'I'm sure Shatter would not object to them seeing their records, "'especially since I intend to tell Madame Sharn "'that she can come back and establish her premises here.' "'You would do that,' said a Gregg. "'Yes, of course.' We have nearly concluded the Coombe Valley Accord, a peace with the trolls that no one ever thought they would see, and I am fed up, gentlemen, with your whining, moaning, and endless, endless attempts to refight battles that you've already lost. As far as I am concerned, this young lady is showing us a better future, and now, if you are not out of my office in ten seconds, I will charge you rent. There will be trouble over this. Gentlemen, there is always trouble, but this time I will be making it for you. As the door slammed shut behind them, the King sat back in his chair. "'Well done, sir,' said his secretary. "'They'll keep on. I can't imagine what being a dwarf would be like if we didn't argue all the time.' He squirmed a little in his chair. "'You know, they're right when they say it doesn't chafe, and it's not as cold as you would imagine. Do ask our agent to express my thanks to Madame Sarn for her generous gifts, will you?' Even this early in the day, the Great Hall of the University was a general thoroughfare. Most of the tables were pushed back against the walls, or, if someone felt like showing off, levitated to the ceiling. And the huge black-and-white slabs of the floor, worn smooth by the footfalls of millennia, were polished still further, as today's faculty and students took a short cut to various concerns, destinations, and, very occasionally, when no viable excuse presented itself, to lectures. The great chandelier had been swung down and off to one side for its daily replenishing of candles, but there was, fortunately for Mustrum Ridcully's purposes, a large expanse of clear floor. He saw the figure he was waiting for, hurrying towards him. How did it go, Mr. Stibbons? Extremely well, I have to say, sir, said Ponder. He opened the sack he was carrying. One of these is our original ball, and one of them is the ball that Nut and Trevor Likely had made last night. Ah! Spot the ball, said Ridcully. He picked them both up in his enormous hands and dropped them onto the flagstones, glowing, glowing. Perfectly identical, he said. Trevor likely said they had it made by a dwarf for twenty dollars, said Ponder. Did he really? Yes, sir, and he gave me the change and the receipt. You seem puzzled, Mr. Stibbons. Well, yes, sir, I feel I have been rather misjudging him. Possibly even small leopards can change their shorts, said Ridcully, slamming him on the back convivially. "'Call it score one for human nature. "'Now, which of these balls is the one that's going back to the cabinet?' "'Amazingly, sir, they did think to mark the new ball, "'and there's a tiny little dot of white paint on this one here. Uh, "'I uh, i mean this one here. "'I think it was here. "'Ah, here it is. "'It's ours. "'I'll send one of the students to put the other one back shortly. "'We still have an hour and a half. "'No, I'd rather you did it yourself, Mr. Stibbons. "'I'm sure it would only take a few minutes. "'Do hurry back. "'I'd like to try a little experiment.' When Ponder returned, he found Ridcully loitering unobtrusively by one of the big doors. "'You have your notebook ready, Mr. Stebbins?' he said quietly. "'And a fresh pencil, Arch-Chancellor. Very well, then. The experiment begins.' Ridcully gently rolled the new football out onto the floor, straightened up, and glanced at his stopwatch. "'Ah, the ball has been kicked aside by the Professor of liberal Studies, quite possibly by accident. Now one of the Bledlows, Mr. Hipney, I think his name is, has kicked it somewhat uncertainly." "'One of the students, Pond Life, I believe, has prodded it back. "'We have momentum, Mr. Stibbons. "'Undirected, it is true, but promising. "'Ah, but we can't have this. "'No touching the ball with your hands, gentlemen,' shouted the Arch-Chancellor, "'deftly trapping the travelling ball with his boot. "'That's a rule. "'We really could do with that whistle, Stibbons.' "'He bounced the ball on the stone floor, glowing. "'Don't just mess about like kids kicking a tin. "'Play football.' I am the Arch-Chancellor of this university, and by IO I will rusticate or otherwise expel any man who skives off without a note from his mother. Ha! Gloing. You will arrange yourselves into two teams, set up goals, and strive to win. No man will leave the field of play unless injured. The hands are not to be used, is that clear? Any questions? A hand went up. Ridcully sought the attached face. Ah, Rincewind, he said and because he was not a determinedly unpleasant man, amended this to Professor Rincewind, of course. Now "'I would like permission to fetch a note from my mother, sir,' Ridcully sighed. "'Rincewind, you once informed me to my everlasting puzzlement that you never knew your mother because she ran away before you were born. Distinctly remember writing it down in my diary. Would you like another try? Permission to go and find my mother?' Ridcully hesitated." The Professor of Cruel and Unusual Geography had no students and no real duties other than to stay out of trouble. Although Ridcully would never admit it, it was against all reason an emeritus position. Rincewind was a coward and an unwitting clown, but he had several times saved the world in slightly puzzling circumstances. He was a luck-sink, the Arch-Chancellor had decided, doomed to being a lightning-rod for the fates so that everyone else didn't have to. "'Such a person was worth all his meals and laundry, "'including an above-average level of soiled pants, "'and a bucket of coal every day, "'even if he was, in Ridcully's opinion, a bit of a whiner. "'However, he was fast and therefore useful.' "'Look,' said Rincewind, "'a mysterious urn turns up and suddenly it's all about football. "'That bodes. "'It means something bad is going to happen.' "'Come now, it could be something wonderful!' Ridcully protested. "'Rincewind appeared to give this due consideration.' "'Could be wonderful, will be dreadful. "'Sorry, that's how it goes.' "'This is Unseen University, Rincewind. "'What is there to fear?' Ridcully said. "'Apart from me, of course. "'Good heavens, this is a sport!' he raised his voice. "'Arrange yourselves into two teams and play football.' He stepped back and joined Ponder. The dragooned footballers, having been given clear instructions in a loud voice, went into a huddle to find out by hubbub what they should actually do instead. "'I can't believe this,' said Ridcully. "'Every boy knows what to do when they've found something to kick, don't they?' He cupped his hands. "'Come on, two captains, step up. I don't care who it is.' This took rather more time than might have been expected, since those who had not surreptitiously left the hall could see that the post-of-football captain was one that offered a wonderful chance for being the target of the Arch-Chancellor's mercurial wrath. Eventually two sacrifices were pushed forward and found it too difficult to push their way back into the ranks again.' "'Now, I say again, pick the teams alternately.' He took off his hat and flung it onto the ground. "'Now, we all understand this. It's a boy thing. It's like little girls in the colour pink. You know how to do this. Pick the teams alternately so that one of you ends up with the weird kid and the other with the fat kid. Some of the fastest mathematics of all time has been achieved by team captains trying not to end up with the weird kid. Stay where you are, Rincewind!' Ponder gave an involuntary shudder as his school days came running back jeering at him the fat kid in his class had been the unfortunately named Piggy Love, whose father owned a sweet shop which gave the son some weight in the community, not to mention clout. That had left only the weird kid as a natural target for the other boys, which meant a chronic hell for Ponder until that wonderful day when sparks came out of Ponder's fingers and Martin Sogger's pants caught fire. He could smell them now. Best days of your life be buggered, "'The Arch-Chancellor could be a bit crass and difficult at times, "'but at least he wasn't allowed to give you a wedgie. "'Are you listening to me, Stibbons?' Ponder blinked. Uh, "'Er, sorry, sir, I was calculating. "'I said, who's the tall fellow with the tan and the dinky beard?' "'Oh, that's Professor Bengo Macarona, Arch-Chancellor, from Genoa, remember? "'He's swapped with Professor Maidenhair for a year. "'Oh, right, poor old Maidenhair. "'Perhaps he won't get laughed at so much in a foreign language.' And Mr Macarona's here to better himself, yes? Put a bit of polish on his career, no doubt. Hardly, sir. He's got doctorates from Unki, QIS and Chubb, 13 in all, and a visiting professorship at Bugger Up. And he's been cited in 236 papers and, um, one divorce petition. What? Uh, "'The rule about celibacy isn't taken seriously over there, sir. "'Very hot-blooded people, I understand, of course. "'His family owns a huge ranch "'and the biggest coffee plantation outside Clatch, "'and I think his grandmother owns the Macarona Shipping Company.' "'So why the hell did he come here?' "'He wants to work with the best, sir,' said Ponder. "'I think he's serious.' "'Really? Oh, well, he seems like a sensible chap, then. Uh, "'The divorce thing?' "'Don't know much, sir. It got hushed up, I believe. "'Angry husband.' "'Angry wife, as I heard it,' said Ponder. "'Oh, he was married, was he?' "'Not to my knowledge, Arch-Chancellor.' "'I don't think I quite understand,' said Ridcully. Ponder, who was not at all at home in this area, said very slowly, "'She was the wife of another man, uh, I, um, believe, sir. "'But I—' To Ponder's relief, light dawned on Ridcully's huge face. "'Oh, you mean he was like Professor Hayden?' "'We used to have a name for him,' Ponder braced himself. "'Snakes. Very keen on them, you know. "'Could talk for hours about snakes with a side order of lizards. Very keen.' "'I'm glad you feel like that, Arch-Chancellor, "'because I know that a number of the students— "'and then there was old Postule, who was in the rowing team— "'coxed us through two wonderful years.' "'Ponder's expression did not change, "'but for a few moments his face went pink and shiny. "'A lot of that sort of thing about, apparently,' said Ridcully.' People make such a fuss. Anyway, in my opinion, there's not enough love in the world. Besides, if you didn't like the company of men, you wouldn't come here in the first place. I say, well done, that man! This was because, in the absence of Ridcully's attention, the footballers had at last started their own kickabout, and some quite fancy footwork was emerging. Yes, what? A Bledlow had appeared alongside Ridcully. Gentlemen, to see the arch Chotzler, sir. He's a wizard, sir. The, er— uh the Dean, as was, only he says he's an Arch-Chancellor too. Ridcully hesitated, but you'd have had to have been an experienced Ridcully watcher, like Ponder, to notice the moment. When the Arch-Chancellor spoke, it was calmly and carefully, every word hammered on the anvil of self-control. What a pleasant surprise, Mr. Nobbs! Do show the Dean in! Oh, and please do not glance at Mr. Stibbons for confirmation, thank you. I am still the Arch-Chancellor in these parts. The only one, in fact. "'Is there a problem, Mr. Stibbons?' "'Well, sir, it is a bit public in here,' Ponder stopped, because suddenly he had nobody's attention. He hadn't seen the ball bounce towards Bledlow Nobbs, no relation, nor the vicious kick the latter gave it, just as he would have an impertinent intrusion by a street urchin's tin can.' Ponder did see the ball curving majestically through the air, heading for the other end of the hall where, behind the organ, rose the stained-glass window dedicated to Arch-Chancellor Abasti, which, on a daily basis, showed one of several thousand scenes of a mystical or spiritual nature. The intuition with which Ponder had successfully calculated the distance and trajectory of the ball told him that the current glowing picture of Bishop Horn realising that the alligator Quiche was an unwise choice had appeared just in time to be extremely unlucky. And then, like some new planet swimming into the ken of a watch of the skies, as they are prone to do, a rusty red shape arose, unfolding as it came, snatched the ball out of the air, and landed on the organ keyboard to the sound of glowing in B-flat. "'Well done, that ape!' the Arch-Chancellor boomed. "'A beautiful say, but regrettably against the rules.' To Ponder's surprise, there was a murmur of dissent from all the players. "'I believe that decision may benefit from some consideration,' said a small voice behind them. "'Who said that?' said Ridcully, spinning round and looking into the suddenly terrified little eyes of Nut. "'Nut, sir, the candle-dribbler. We met yesterday. I helped you with the ball.' "'And you are telling me I'm wrong, are you?' "'I would rather you thought of me as suggesting a way in which you could be even more right.' "'Ridcully opened his mouth and then shut it again. "'I know what he is,' he thought. "'Does he, or did they spare him that?' "'Very well, Mr. Nutt. "'Is there a point you wish to make?' "'Yes, sir. "'What is the purpose of this game?' "'To win, of course.' "'Indeed. "'Regrettably, it is not being played that way.' "'It isn't?' "'No, sir. "'The players all want to kick the ball.' "'And so they should, surely,' said Ridcully. "'Only if you believe the purpose of the game "'is healthy exercise, sir.' "'Do you play chess?' "'Well, I have done.' "'And would you have thought it proper "'for all the pawns to swarm up the board "'in the hope of checkmating the king?' "'For a moment Ridcully had a mental vision "'of Lord Vetinari holding aloft a solitary pawn "'and saying what it might become. "'Oh, come now, that is quite different,' he burst out. "'Yes, but the skill lies "'in marshalling resources in the right way. "'Ridcully saw a face appear behind Nut "'like a rising moon of wrath.' "'You don't talk to the gentleman Nut! "'It is not your place to take up their time with your chatter!' "'Ridcully writhed in sympathy with Nut, "'all the more so because Smeems, as is the habit of such people, "'kept looking at the Arch-Chancellor as if seeking, and worse, "'expecting approval of this petty tyranny. "'But authority must back up authority, in public at least, "'otherwise there is no authority.' and therefore the senior authority is forced to back up the junior authority, even if he, the senior authority, believes that the junior authority is a tiresome little tit. "'Thank you for your concern, Mr. Smeems,' he said. "'But in fact I asked Mr. Nutt his opinion of our little kickabout, since it is the game of the people, and he is rather more people than I am. I will not keep him long from his duties, Mr. Smeems, nor you from yours, which I know are both vital and pressing.' "'Small, insecure authority can spot, if it is sensible, "'when a larger authority is giving it a chance to save face.' "'Right you are, sir,' said Smeems, after only a second's hesitation, "'and he scurried off to safety. "'The thing called Nut appeared to be trembling. "'He thinks he's done something wrong,' Ridcully thought, "'and I shouldn't think of him as a thing. "'Some wizard's sense made him look around into the face of— "'What was the lad's name? "'Trevor Likely. "'Do you have anything else to add, Mr. Likely? only I'm a bit busy at the moment.' "'I gave Mr. Stibbons the change and the receipt,' said Trevor. "'What is it you do around here, young man?' "'I run the candle vats, Gov.' "'Oh, do you? We're getting some very good dribbling from you fellows these days,' Trev appeared to let this pass. "'Mr. Nutt is not in any trouble, is he, Gov?' "'Not to my knowledge.' "'But what do I know?' Ridcully asked himself. "'Mr. Nutt, by definition, is trouble.' but the librarian says he potters about repairing things and is generally an amiable milksop, and he talks as though he's giving a lecture. You didn't get anywhere at Unseen University without being able to understand the vast number of meanings that can be carried by the word ook. This little man, who actually, when you look at him, is not as little as he appears because he weighs himself down with humility, this little man was born with a name so fearsome some peasants chained him to an anvil because they were too scared to kill him. "'Perhaps Vetinari and his friends are right in their smug way, "'and a leopard can change his shorts. "'I hope so, because if they aren't, a leopard will be a picnic. "'And any minute now the Dean is coming, damn his treacherous hide. "'Oh, he's my friend, Gov. "'Well, that's good. Everyone should have a friend. "'I'm not going to let anyone touch him, Gov. "'A brave ambition, young man, if I may say so. "'Nevertheless, Mr. Nut,' Why did you object when I pointed out that the librarian, wonderful though his rising save was, was in infringement of the rules? Nutt didn't look up, but in a small voice said, It was elegant. It was beautiful. The game should be beautiful like a well-executed war. Oh, I don't think many people would say that war is very jolly, said Bridcully. Beauty can be considered to be neutral, sir. It is not the same as nice or good. I thought it was the same as truth, though, said Ponder, trying to keep up which is often horrible, sir, but Mr. Librarian's leap was both beautiful, sir, and good, sir, and therefore must be true, and therefore the rule which should prevent him from doing it again would be proved to be neither beautiful nor true, and would indeed be a false law. That's right, Gov, said Trev. People will shout for that stuff. Do you mean that they cheer for a goal not achieved? said Ponder. Of course they will, and groan it's something happening, Ridcully snorted. You saw the game the other day. If you are lucky, you got a glimpse of a lot of large, grubby men fighting over a ball like a lump of wood. People want to see goals scored, and saved. Remember, Trev pointed out. Exactly, young man agreed. Ridcully. it must be a game of speed. This is the year of the pensive hare, after all. People get bored so easily. No wonder there are fights. We need, do we not, to make a sport that is more exciting than beating other people over the head with big weapons. That one's always been very popular, said Ponder doubtfully. Well, we are wizards, after all, and now I must go and greet the bloody, the so-called Arch-Chancellor of Braznick so-called college, in the correct damned spirit of fraternal goodwill.' "'So-called?' murmured Ponder, not quite softly enough. "'What say?' the Arch-Chancellor bellowed. "'Just wondering what you want me to do, Arch-Chancellor.' "'Do? Keep em playing, see who's good at it. Work out what the most beautiful rules are,' Ridcully called out, heading out of the hall at speed. "'By myself,' said Ponder, horrified, "'I've got a huge workload. "'Delegate!' "'You know I'm hopeless at delegating, sir. "'Then delegate the job of delegating to someone who isn't. "'Now I must be off before he steals the silverware!' "'It was very rare for Glenda to take time off. "'Being the head of the night kitchen was a mental state, not a physical one. "'The only meal she ever ate at home was breakfast, and that was always in a hurry. "'But now she'd stolen some time to sell the dream.' May Hedges was looking after the kitchen, and she was reliable and got on with everyone, and so there were no worries there. The sun had come out, and now she knocked on the rear door of Mr. Strong-in-the-Arms' workshop. The dwarf opened the door with rouge all over his fingers. "'Oh, well, old Glender, how's it going?' She thumped a wad of orders on the table proudly and opened the suitcase. It was empty. "'And I need a lot more samples,' she said. "'Oh, that's wonderful,' said the dwarf. "'When did you get these?' "'This morning.' "'It had been easy.' "'Door after door seemed to have opened for her, "'and every time a little voice in her head had said, "'Are you doing the right thing?' "'A slightly deeper voice, "'which sounded remarkably like Madame Charnes, said, "'He wants to make it. "'You want to sell it. "'They want to buy it. "'The dream goes round and round, "'and so does the money. "'The lipstick went down very well,' she said. "'Those troll girls put it on with a trowel, "'and I'm not kidding. "'So what you ought to do, sir, "'is sell the trowel, "'a pretty one in an ice-box with sprinkles on it.' "'He gave her an admiring look.' "'This isn't like you, Glenda.' "'Not sure about that,' said Glenda, as more samples were dropped into the battered case. "'Have you thought about getting into shoes?' "'Do you think it would be worth a try? They don't normally wear shoes.' "'They didn't wear lipstick until they moved here,' said Glenda. "'It could be the coming thing.' "'But they've got feet like granite. They don't need shoes.' "'But they'll want them,' said Glenda. "'You could be in on the ground floor, as it were.' Strong in the arm looked puzzled, and Glenda remembered that even city dwarfs were used to the topsy-turvy language of home. Oh, sorry, I meant to say the top floor. "'And then there's dresses,' said Glenda. "'I've been looking around, and no one makes proper dresses for trolls. They're just outsized human dresses, and they're cut to make the troll look smaller, but they'd be better if they were cut to make them look bigger. More like a troll, and less like a fat human. You know, you want the clothing to shout, "'I'm a great big troll lady, and proud of it!' "'Have you been hit on the head with something?' said Strong in the Arm. "'Because if so, I'd like it to drop on me.' "'Well, it's spreading the dream, isn't it?' said Glenda, "'carefully arranging the samples in her suitcase. "'It's a bit more important than I thought.' She made fourteen more successful calls before calling it a day, posted the orders through Strong in the Arm's letterbox, and, with a light case and uncharacteristically light heart, went back to work. Ridcully turned the corner, and there, right in front of him, was— His mind spun as it sought for the correct mode of address. Arch-Chancellor was out of the question. Dean, too obvious an insult. Two chairs, ditto with knobs on, and ungrateful, backstabbing, slimy bastard, took too long to say. What the hell was the bastard's name? Great heavens, they'd been friends since their first day at UU. Henry! he exploded. What a pleasant surprise! What brings you here to our miserable and sadly out-of-date little university?' Oh, come now, Rustrum. When I left, the lads were pushing back the boundaries of knowledge. It's been a bit quiet since, I gather. By the way, this is Professor Turnipseed. There appeared from behind the self-styled arch-chancellor of Braesneck, like a moonlit moving out of the shadow of a gas giant, a sheepish young man who instantly reminded Ridcully of Ponder Stibbons, although for the life of him he couldn't make out why. "'Perhaps it was the look of someone permanently doing sums in his head, "'and not just proper sums, either, but the sneaky sort with letters in them.' "'Oh, well, you know how it is with boundaries,' Ridcully mumbled. "'You look at what's on the other side, "'and you realise why there was a boundary in the first place. "'Good afternoon, Turnipseed. Your face is familiar.' "'I used to work here, sir,' said Turnipseed sheepishly. "'Oh, yes, I recall, in the high-energy magic department, yes?' a coming man, our Adrian,' said the former dean, proprietorially.' "'We have our own high-energy magic building now, you know. "'We call it the higher-energy magic building. "'But I stress that this is only to avoid confusion. "'No slight on good old you-you is intended. "'Adopt, adapt, improve, that's my motto.' "'Well, if you adapted it, then it's now grab, copy, and look innocent,' "'Ridcully thought, but carefully. "'Senior wizards never rowed in public. "'The damage was apt to be appalling. "'No, politeness ruled, but with sharpened edges.' I doubt there will be any confusion, Henry. We are the senior college, after all, and, of course, I am the only arch in these parts. By custom and practice, mustrum, and times are changing, or being changed at least, but I wear the Arch-Chancellor's hat, Henry, as worn by my predecessors down the centuries. The hat, Henry, of supreme authority in the affairs of the wise, the cunning, and the crafty. The hat, in fact, on my head. It isn't, you know, said Henry cheerfully. You are wearing the everyday hat you made yourself. It would be on my head if I wanted it to be. Henry's smile was glassy. Of course, Mostram, but the authority of the hat has often been challenged. Almost correct, old chap. In fact, it is the ownership of the hat that has in the past been disputed, but the hat itself never. Now, I note that you yourself are wearing a particularly spiffy hat of a magnificence that goes beyond the sublime, but it is just a hat, old boy, just a hat. No offence meant, of course, and I am sure that in another millennium it will have become weighted with dignity and wisdom. I can see that you have left plenty of room. Turnip seed decided to make a run for the lavatories right now, and with a muted apology pushed past Ridcully and sped away. Oddly enough, the sudden lack of an audience lowered the tension rather than increased it. Henry pulled a slim packet out of his pocket. "'Cigarette? I know that you roll your own, but Verdant and Scour make these specially for me, and they are rather fine.' Ridcully took one, because a wizard, however haughty, who would not accept a free smoke or a drink, would be in his coffin. But he took care not to notice the words "'Arch-Chancellor's Choice' in garish type on the packet. As he handed the packet back, something small and colourful dropped out onto the floor. Henry, with an agility unexpected in a wizard so far up the main sequence as described in the well-known Owl Spring Tips diagram, Uh, this diagram was devised to chart the tendency of wizards, who start out small and pale, to progress through the craft getting bigger and cholerically redder until at last they swell up and explode in a cloud of pomposity. Reached down quickly and snatched it up, muttering something about not letting it get dirty. "'You can eat your dinner off these floors,' said Ridcully sharply, "'and probably would,' he added to himself. "'Only the collectors get so annoyed if there is a speck of dust on them, "'and I give mine to the butler's, little boy,' Henry went on blithely. He turned the pasteboard over and frowned. "'Notable wizards of our time, number nine of fifty, "'Dr. Abel Baker, B.C. Ons, F.D.L. K.P. P.D.F. Eskra, "'director of Blitz Studies, Brazenick, "'I'm sure he's already got this one.' He dropped it into a waistcoat pocket. "'Never mind. Good for swapsies.' Ridcully could assess things quite fast, especially when fuelled by banked fires of rage. "'The Whistler Tobacco Snuff and Rolling Paper Company,' he said, of Pseudopolis. "'Clever idea. Who's in this from you, you?' "'Ah, well, I have to admit that the assembly and people of Pseudopolis are rather patriotic in their outlook. I think the word is parochial, don't you?' "'Harsh words, considering that Ankh-Morpork's the smuggest, most self-satisfied city in the world.' This was self-evidently true, so Ridcully decided he hadn't heard it. "'You are one of these cards, then?' he grunted. "'They insisted, I'm afraid,' said Henry. "'I was born there, you see, local boy and all that.' "'And no one from you, you,' said Ridcully flatly. Technically, no, but Professor Turnipseed is in there as the inventor of pecks.' "'As Henry said it, guilt and defiance fought for space in the sentence. "'Pecks,' said Ridcully slowly. "'You mean like hex?' "'Oh, no, not at all like hex, certainly not. "'The principle is quite different,' Henry cleared his throat. "'It's run by chickens. "'They trigger the morphic resonator, or whatever it's called.' "'Your Hex, as I recall, utilises ants, which are far less efficient. "'How so? "'We get eggs we can eat. "'That doesn't sound all that different, you know. "'Oh, come now, they are hundreds of times bigger, "'and Pex is in a purpose-built room, "'not strung haphazardly all over the place. "'Professor Turnipseed knows what he is doing, "'and even you, Mostrom, must acknowledge "'that the River of Progress is fed by a thousand springs. "'And they didn't all rise in bloody brazenegg!' said Ridcully. They glared at one another. Professor Turnipseed poked his head around the corner, and pulled it back very quickly. "'If we were the men our fathers were, we'd be throwing fireballs by now,' said Henry. "'The point is taken,' said Ridcully. "'Although, I must point out, our fathers were not wizards.' "'That's right, of course,' said the former dean. "'Your father was a butcher, as I recall.' "'That's right, and your father owned a lot of cabbage-fields,' said Ridcully. There was a moment's silence.' and then the former dean said, "'Remember the day we both turned up at UU?' we fought like tigers, as I recall,' said Ridcully. "'Good times when you come to remember them,' said the dean. "'Of course, we've all passed a lot of water over the bridge since then,' said Ridcully. There was another pause, and he added, "'Fancy a drink?' "'I don't mind if I do,' said the former dean. "'So you are trying to play football,' said Henry, as they progressed majestically towards the Arch-Chancellor's office. "'I did see something about it in the paper, but I thought it was a joke.' "'Why, pray?' said Ridcully, as they began to walk across the Great Hall. "'We have a fine sporting tradition, as well you know.' "'Ah, yes. Tradition is the scourge of endeavour. Be sensible, Mostrom. The leopard may change his shorts, but I think he'd have a job getting into the ones he wore forty years ago.' "'Oh, I see that you still have Mr. Stibbons here.' "'Er,' began Ponder, looking from one to the other. Ponder Stibbons had once got one hundred per cent in a prescience exam by getting there the previous day. He could see a little storm-cloud when it was beginning to grow. "'How's the football going, lad?' "'Oh, it seems to be going very well, Arch-Chancellor. Good to see you again, Dean.' "'Arch-Chancellor,' purred the former Dean. "'I wonder how good you would be against my university.' "'Well, we have a pretty nifty team built here,' said Ridcully. "'And, while it is our intention to play our first game against a local side, "'I would take great pleasure in showing Braseneck a thing or two on the field.' By now they were almost in the middle of the Great Hall, and their presence, not unexpectedly, had stopped play. Arch Chancellor, I really feel that it might be a good idea to—' Ponder began, but his voice was drowned out by the roar of approval that rang out from all sides around the Great Hall.' "'And the prize would be,' said Henry, smiling at the crowd. "'What?' spluttered the Arch-Chancellor. "'What prize?' "'We picked up a few rowing trophies when we were lads, didn't we?' "'I believe the patrician has got something planned for the league, yes.' "'I think that refreshments will be laid out in the blue refectory shortly,' said Ponder, with a kind of desperate, sweaty cheerfulness. "'There will, of course, be cake, but also, I believe, an interesting assortment of curries.' On many occasions this might have worked, but the two senior wizards had locked glares and would not so much as blink, even for a slice of ploughman's pie. "'But we men of craft are not interested in such paltry baubles as cups and medals, are we?' said Henry. "'For us it's huge, great, big baubles or nothing. Is that not right, Mustrom?' "'You are after the hat,' said Ridcully flatly. The air between them was humming. "'Yes, of course.' There followed the menacing silence of a clash of wills, but Ponder Stibbons decided that as he was technically twelve important people at the university, he formed, all by himself, a committee, and since he was therefore de facto very wise, he should intervene. "'And your stake, uh, D—sir, would be?' Ridcully turned his head slightly and growled. "'It doesn't have to have one. I have rather walked into this.' There was a stirring from the more senior wizards, and Ponder heard a whispered phrase— "'Dead man's pointy shoes?' "'No, I forbid it,' said Ponder. "'You forbid it?' said Henry. "'You are but a chick, young Stibbons.' "'The accumulated votes of all the posts I hold on the University Council mean that I do technically control it,' said Ponder, trying to stick out a skinny chest that was never built for sticking, but still buoyed up and awash with righteous rage and a certain amount of terror about what might happen when it ran out of steam.' The contenders relaxed a little more in the presence of this turning worm. "'Didn't anyone notice that you were getting all this power?' said Ridcully. "'Yes, sir, me. Only I thought it was responsibility and hard work. None of you ever bother with details, you see. Technically, I have to report to other people, but usually the other people are me.' "'You have no idea, sirs. I'm even the Camalengo, which means that if you drop dead, Arch-Chancellor, from any cause other than legitimate succession under the dead man's pointy shoes tradition, I run this place until a successor is elected, which, given the nature of wizardry, will mean a job for life, in which case the librarian, as an identifiable and competent member of the senior staff, will try to discharge his duties.' And if he fails, the official procedure is for wizards everywhere to fight among themselves for the hat, causing fire, destruction, doves, rabbits, and billiard-balls to appear from every orifice, and much loss of life. After a short pause, he continued, again, which is why some of us get a little worried when we see powerful wizards squabbling like this. To conclude, gentlemen, I have spoken at some length in order to give you time to consider your intentions. Somebody has to. Ridcully cleared his throat. "'Thank you for your input, Stibbons. We shall discuss this matter further. Definitely something that needed to be said. These aren't the old days, after all.' "'Your point is taken,' said Henry. "'Except that, technically, these are going to be somebody else's old days.' Ponder's chest was still going up and down. "'A very good point,' said Ridcully. "'I believe I heard mention of a curry,' said Henry, with equal care." It was like listening to two ancient dragons talking to each other with the help of an even older book of etiquette, written by nuns. "'It's a long time until lunch.' This may not be true. Wizards tend to think it's a long time to the next meal, right up until they are consuming it. "'I tell you what, why don't you accept the hospitality of my university? I believe we have left your room exactly as it was, although I understand some quite amazing things have crawled out under the door. And perhaps you might like to stay on for tomorrow's banquet.' "'Oh, are you having a banquet?' said Henry. "'Indeed so, and I would be delighted if you would accept, old boy. "'We'll be entertaining some of the solid citizenry. "'Salt-of-the-earth fellows, you understand. "'Wonderful people if you don't watch them eat, "'but quite good conversationalists if you give them enough beer. "'Funnily enough, I find that works with wizards, too. "'Well, I must accept, of course, I haven't been to a banquet in ages.' "'You haven't?' said Ridcully. "'I thought you'd have a banquet every night.' "'We have a limited budget, you know,' said the Arch-Chancellor of Brazenek. "'It's a governmental grant thing, you see.' The wizards fell silent. It was as if a man had just told you his mother had died. Ridcully patted him on the hand. "'Oh, I'm so sorry.' He paused at the doors of the hall and turned back to ponder. "'We'll be having some high-level discussions, Stibbons. Keep them on their toes. The lads will help. Find out what football wants to be.' the older members of the faculty exhaled as the two heads left. Most of them were old enough to recall at least two pitched battles amongst factions of wizards, the worst of which had only been brought to a conclusion by Rincewind, wielding a half-brick in a sock. Ponder looked across at Rincewind now, and he was hopping awkwardly on one leg, trying to put a sock back on. He thought it better not to comment. It was probably the same sock. The Chair of Indefinite Studies slapped Ponder on the back. "'Well done, lad. Could have been a nasty incident there.' "'Thank you, sir. I'm sorry we seem to have loaded you down a bit. I'm sure it wasn't deliberate.' "'I'm sure it wasn't too, sir. Very little around here is,' Ponder sighed. "'I'm afraid that unthinking delegation and prevarication and procrastination are standard practice here.' He looked expectantly at the remaining members of the Council. He wanted to be disappointed, but knew he wouldn't be. "'A very bad state of affairs indeed,' said the lecturer in recent runes. The chair looked grave. "'Hm.' "'So go on,' thought Ponder. "'Say it. I know you're going to. You just won't be able to stop yourself. You really won't.' "'I think, Stibbons, that you should sort it out when you have a moment,' said the chair. "'Bingo!' "'I beg your pardon, Stibbons.' "'Oh, nothing, sir. Not really. I was just pondering, as it were, on the unchangeable nature of the universe. "'I'm glad somebody is. Keep it up!' The lecturer in recent runes looked around and added, "'It all seems to have quietened down. "'That curry sounds amusing.' There was a general movement towards the doors on the part of those wizards who were well endowed with years, gravitation, or both, but the scratch-match went on among those less magnetically attracted to knives and forks. Ponder sat down, his clipboard balanced on his lap. "'I don't have the faintest idea what I'm doing here,' he declared to the world around him. "'May I be of some worth, sir?' Mr. Nutt, oh, well, it's very kind of you, but I don't think that your skill with a candle can be of much— In games of this nature, there are three classes of things to be considered. One, the rules of the game in all their detail. Two, the correct skills, actions, and philosophies required for success. And three, an understanding of the real nature of the game. May I continue? Huh? said Ponder, in that slight daze that overcame everyone hearing a Nutt lecture for the first time. Got a fine jaw on him, any said Trev. He can say the long words where the likes of you and me would have to stop for a rest halfway through. Me, anyway, he trailed off. Um, do continue, Mr. Nutt. Thank you, sir. As I understand it, the purpose of this game is to score at least one more goal than your opponents. But our two teams just ran around with everyone trying to kick the ball at once. Oh, goals were scored, but only opportunistically. As in chess, you must secure the king, your goal.' Yes, you are going to say that you have the custodian of the goal, but he is only one man, figuratively speaking. Every ball he saves shames the team members who let the opponents get so close. Yet, at the same time, they must maximise their chances of getting the ball into the opposing goal. This is a problem I will have to address. I have mentioned chess, but this game, and particularly the ease with which the ball takes flight, means that the activity can go from one end of the play to the other in seconds.' "'just as one dwarf piece can upset the whole board in a game of thud.' "'He smiled up at their expressions and added, "'You know, this game is surely one of the simplest. "'Any little boy knows how to play it, "'and yet playing it optimally requires superhuman talents,' "'he thought for a moment and added, "'or possibly subhuman. "'Certainly the willing sublimation of the ego, "'which takes us into the realms of the metaphysical. "'So simple and yet so complex. "'You know, this is wonderful.' "'I'm quite thrilled.' The ring of silence around him was not ominous, but the air choked with bafflement. Finally, the wizard Rincewind said, "'Er, uh, Mr. nah I thought you told us we just had to get the ball between the pointy hats.' "'Professor Rincewind, you run very well, but you don't do anything with it. Professor Macarona, you attempt to score as soon as you get the ball, irrespective of anything else that's happening. Dr. Hicks, you cheat and foul constantly. "'Excuse me, school Ring?' "'Hicks intervened. "'I am required to attempt to break the rules "'under college statutes.' "'Within acceptable limits,' Ponder added quickly. "'Bledlow Nobs, no relation. "'You have a furiously powerful kick,' Nutt continued. "'But you don't seem to care where the ball goes "'so long as it gets there. "'All of you have strengths and weaknesses, "'and it might be possible to make use of both of them. "'That is, if you want to win. "'But for now, a good exercise would be "'to get a lot more of these balls "'and learn how to control them.' "'Running while kicking the ball ahead of you simply means that you will lose it to an opponent. You must learn to keep it at your feet. You were all looking down to check that you had the ball. Gentlemen, if you need to check that you still have the ball, you either do not have it, or you will lose it in the next fraction of a second. Now, if you'll excuse me, Mr. Trev and I will get into trouble if we don't get the chandelier back up soon.' The spell broke. "'What?' said Ponder. "'I mean, what? Stay there, Mr. Nut? "'Nut immediately hunched and stared at his feet in their clumsy shoes. "'I'm sorry if I have transgressed in any way. "'I was only seeking worth.' "'Worth?' said Ponder, looking at Trev for some kind of map of this new territory. "'That's how he talks, that's all,' said Trev. "'He hasn't done anything wrong, so why shout at him like that? "'They were some bloody good ideas. "'You shouldn't pick on him just because he's small and talks posh.' "'Nut seemed noticeably taller a little while ago,' Ponder thought, Is he really just hunched up.' "'I wasn't exactly shouting at him,' he said. "'I just wondered what he's doing dribbling candles. "'I mean, I know that's what he's doing, but why?' "'Ah, you have to have dribbled candles, sir,' said Bedloe Nobbs, no relation. "'And to my mind, the dribbling has been particularly fine just lately. "'Often, when I walk in the corridors of a night, I think to myself, "'Good heavens, man, he's erudite. "'He radiates learning. "'He's a polymath,' said Ponder. "'Are you saying he's too smart to be a candle dribbler?' "'said the Bledlow, a militant look in his eye. "'You wouldn't want a stupid dribbler, would you? "'You'd get, like, manky dribbles all over the place.' "'I simply meant that—' "'And blobs,' said the Bledlow firmly. "'But you must admit that it is strange that—' "'Probably everyone wants him dead.' "'Ponder stopped as the chasm of memory opened. "'That makes no sense. "'It can't be true. "'Sir?' "'He realised that all the footballers were staring at him. Ridcully had refused to say any more, and in Ponder's crowded mind he'd settled for believing that Nut was on the run in some way. It was not unknown. Occasionally a novice wizard working in a small town might find it a good idea to hurry back for a swift refresher course in the safety of the university's hospitable stones, until his little mistake had been rectified, forgotten, erased, caught and bottled. There had always been others given sanctuary for mysterious reasons. The politics of wizardry were either very simple and resolved by someone ceasing to breathe, or as complex as one ball of yarn in a room with three bright-eyed little kittens. But Nut, what crime could he have done? Then you had to factor in that it was Ridcully who had allowed him to come here, and indeed had put Ponder in this position. The sensible thing, therefore, was to just get on with it. "'I think Mr. Nut has some very good ideas.' "'he said carefully, and I think he should continue. "'Do carry on, Mr. Nutt.' "'Watching Nut look up was like watching the sun rise, "'but a hesitant sun, afraid that at any moment "'the gods might slap it back down into the night, "'and hungry for reassurance that this would not be so. "'I'm worthy. "'Well, er,' uh, Ponder began, and saw Trev nodding frantically. "'Well, uh, yes, it would seem so, Mr. Nutt. "'I'm amazed at your insight in so short a time.' I have a talent for pattern recognition in developing situations. Really? Oh, good. Carry on, then. Excuse me, I have a question, if you would be so good. Looks like a bag of second-hand clothes. Talks like a retired theologian, Ponder thought. Ask away, Mr. Nutt. Can I carry on with the dribbling? What? Do you want to? Yes, thank you. I enjoy it, and it does not take me long. Ponder glanced at Trev, who shrugged, made a face, nodded. "'But I have a favour to ask,' Nutt went on. "'I rather expected you would,' said Ponder, "'but I'm sorry to say that the budget this term means—' "'Oh, no, I don't want any money,' said Nutt. "'I don't really spend it, anyway. "'I just want Mr. Trev in the team. "'He is very modest, but you should know he is a genius with his feet. "'I cannot see how you could lose with him in the team.' "'Oh, no,' said Trev, waving his hands and backing away. "'No, not me. I'm not a footballer. "'I just kicked tin cans around.' "'Thought that was at the heart and soul of Foot-the-Ball, isn't it?' said Ponder, who'd never been allowed to play in the street. "'I thought it was when early blokes kicked a dead enemy's head around,' Bledlow, Nobs, no relation, volunteered. A throat was cleared. "'Unlikely, in my opinion,' said Hicks. "'Unless it's in a bag or some sort of metal brace, and then you have the problem of weight, because a human head comes in at around ten pounds, which is a pain in the foot, I should think.' "'Scooping it out would work for a while, of course, "'but mind you, wire the jaw, "'because no one wants to be bitten in the foot. "'I do have some heads on ice, if anyone wants to experiment. "'It's amazing, but there are still those "'who leave their bodies to necromancy. "'There's some strange people out there.' "'At this point, the head of the Department "'of Post-Mortem Communications realised "'that he was not taking his audience with him. "'There's no need to look at me like that,' he grumbled. "'Skull-ring, remember. "'I have to know this wretched stuff.' Ponder coughed politely. "'Mr. Uh, Likely, isn't it? Your colleague speaks very highly of you. Won't you join us?' "'Sorry, Gubb, but I promised me old mum that I'd never play football. It's a good way of getting your head caved in.' "'Trev Lightly!' roared Bledlow Nobs, no relation. "'Are you Dave Likely's lad?' "'He scored four goals, yeah, yeah, yeah,' said Trev, and then died in the street with the rain washing his blood down the gutter and someone's smelly overcoat over him. The Prince of Football!' "'Do we—' Need a little talk, Mr Trev, Nutt said urgently. No, no, I'm okay, okay?